Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strafford, Michael Palmer with you today, and we're going to talk about temperatures and performance. We have two very special guests to talk about that. Mike, I want to quickly say hi to you. You doing well today? I'm doing well. This, uh, this recording studio is probably around 72 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and uh, that's a bit of a curveball to our guests, too, because I, I do want to talk briefly about how wonderful Fahrenheit is rel- relative to Celsius, but, uh, or centigrade, uh, or, or absolute, or Kelvin, uh, you know, whichever, whichever, you know, we're, we're all about diversity and inclusion, and I think that includes uh, temperature. But, uh, but I'm doing well. It's a little warm in here, but, uh, but I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this topic. This topic was, was hugely relevant to me when I saw it, uh, and I'm really excited to have, uh, to have some uh, experts here on the show to, to really uh, provide some depth uh, to the conversation. And those experts include Tom Chang out of USC's Associate Professor of Finance and Business Economics, and Dr. Agna Kayetskaita, who is the head of the research group Ethics and Behavioral Economics, WZB Berlin Social Science Center. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. I wanted to jump off and maybe, um, Agna, you could tackle this one or, or Tom, who, whoever has more insight. How did this research project begin and maybe give us some, some insight into why you decided to tackle this idea of, of temperature and performance uh, against uh, workplace and test scores uh, for individuals? So uh, why don't I take this one? Um, I think it started with what I do whenever I, I meet another economist, which is I try to, con- I, I ask them a question. This is sort of my default question to all of them. I ask them, um, what do you think there's more variation in, in people's preferences across the cross sections? If I look at, you know, across people, or is it that there's more variation in our own sort of preferences and behaviors over time? Um, and almost everyone, I've only had one person ever say across, across, you know, that across has less. Nobody seems to think within has more variation. And as an economist, this is exactly how we're trained, right? The, the assumption that preferences are stable is, is one of the central tenets of modern economics. And in fact, the hallmark of what we think of as preferences in economics anyway is consistency and short-run stability. But, you know, it might just be me, um, and that's part of what I want to find out if this is just me, is that over the course of the day, my sort of preferences and decision-making just changes vastly. In the morning, before I've had my second cup of coffee, I can't make any decision. Or if the decisions I, I make are going to be really stupid. If I'm sick, oh my goodness, I hate the world and everyone and everything in it, right? And so I sense in myself this huge variation in, in sort of how, we'll call them visceral factors, right? So things like emotion, hunger, arousal, fatigue, all these things sort of affect us in all these ways. And so I, you know, started talking with Agna about this and she has this this really cool work about um about lying and so we're trying to figure out how to incorporate these two things together and um you know one of the things that was going on during that time is uh I was having problems with temperature in my office so um the temperature in my office was fluctuating day to day from I kid you not 55 degrees to 93 degrees wow and, and that's so, fair, just to be clear, that's we're talking Fahrenheit, not centigrade, is, because you're, you're not Fahrenheit, otherwise yeah. you would, be, would be on like dead. the surface of Venus or or yeah. it would be getting warm. Yes, yes. It, it would be it would be I'd I'd be dead. But <laughs> yes, at Fahrenheit. And um 
you know, so it was kind of top of mind. And so we, we sort of fell into sort of thinking about a broader research thing about how preferences might change with something like temperature, since that's something that we could manipulate in the lab. And eventually, we, we, once we started doing a little bit, we, we, we were kind of shocked to discover that nobody had looked at the male-female difference in response to temperature for performance. There's tons of things like survey evidence that shows that, yes, women on average prefer warmer indoor temperatures than men. There were some things on like performance and temperature. Uh, there's actually a lot on performance and temperature, mostly um, physical performance because this was stuff uh, a lot of it was done by the military they, they care about how their soldiers operate in different conditions right um and then when it came to the cognitive stuff later on the results were just all over the map and nobody had looked at the difference between male and female performance in response to temperature so we thought this is fabulous and then the the thing i think at least that i knew that this would be um sort of it would get a lot more attention was when, um, while we were in the middle of running the experiment, there was the, do you remember the Cynthia Nixon Cuomo debate thing? Mm -hmm. So they were fighting over what the temperature of the debate hall should be. Mm -hmm. And there were accusations that the temperature, Cynthia Nixon's team was, was saying that the temperature was sexist. Because mm -hmm. Cuomo likes it cold. I think he wanted it like 60 degrees. And Cynthia Nixon counted with 76 degrees. And so there was this big fight, you know, all the sort of papers and social media had this thing about can temperature be sexist, like right in the middle of, of one of the experiments. And I was like, oh, yeah, this will get some press. But um, yeah, it, it really goes back to trying to figure out how, you know, these environmental factors, these visual factors affect, affect us in ways I don't think we give them sufficient credit for. Mm. And then, uh, and then Agna, like the research you were doing, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? About the lying research? Yeah. Well, we moved away from that. We were doing this at the beginning, but then we moved to the performance research. So I can tell you what we did in the experiment. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious maybe just for context about the lying research and then, and then I think we can move into more of the performance-based stuff. So just, just real quickly. Well, the lying research is pretty popular in behavioral economics right now. Uh, we have a very good paradigm to analyze lying behavior. So we get people to the lab and we let them roll a six-sided die and report the number that they have. The higher the number they report, the more money they get. So if they report a one, they will get $1. If they report two, they will get $2. And if they report six, they will get $6. Now, if we have hundreds of people participating in the experiment, we expect that the distribution will be somewhere close to theoretical distribution. So each number will appear in around 67% of the time. Mm -hmm. However, if people lie, we will see a shift towards higher numbers. Mm -hmm. And this is what we see. This is what we see. People lie a lot. Many lie to the full extent, but also many people lie partially. So they like hiding behind the five. So they don't go for six. They want to save their face and they go for five because they think it doesn't look like a lie. Mm -hmm. And then with, with this paradigm, you can do many things. You can look at how many things affect cheating behavior. Like for example, I just conducted an experiment in Thailand where we looked at how poverty affects cheating behavior. Mm. So you go there before harvest and after harvest and people are poor and richer and you see whether poverty leads to more cheating and so on. This is what they do. Mostly. Got it. No, I mean, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, we have a deep uh, affection for behavioral economists. We seem to continue to get them on our, our show. And then I imagine when, when two behavioral economists get together uh, with the context and the, the background that you guys are talking about, uh, some amazing things can happen. So, uh, 
So can you talk a little more about, uh, maybe Agna just continuing with you, um, how you structured the, um, the research for, uh, for the impact of temperature on uh, performance? So in behavioral economics, we have a very good set of tools. So we have controlled lab experiments and we incentivize people for participating in them, in, in them and we just collect their preferences and, and actions. So what we did was we varied the temperature in the room, in the lab here in Berlin, between 16 and 33 Celsius, the whole continuum. So all the temperatures. And just translating the- that again for an American audience, uh, it's the one place, and just to be clear, I'm pro metric, but I also still think Fahrenheit is better. And, I, and you know, no. that's, a, that's, that's a topic for a separate podcast. So like we don't need to, I'm just going to tease that one, but I feel, I feel pretty confident in this, but, but we're not going to go there. But just okay. so that for folks who only know Fahrenheit, uh, okay. what, what range are we talking about? Between 61 and 91 Fahrenheit, correct, Tom? Yes. Good. And that's, that's a good range. So that goes from you know, sweater weather to uh, flip-flops and, uh, and shorts, right? So like you're getting, right. you, you get like to like beyond normal workplace extremes, I guess. Well, 61 happens in the workplace, doesn't it? Yeah, especially I guess if uh, if uh, Andrew Cuomo's involved, yes, yes, exactly. Like I think, yeah, I really he wants sixty, and so we varied this temperature between treatments. Like so, we had like sessions, and in each session we had a different temperature, and we had people in there solving cognitive tasks. So we had overall over five hundred people, and they had to solve three tasks. So one task was a math task, the other one was a verbal task, and the other one was a cognitive reflection test. So a math task is very simple, it's just adding up numbers. So those are five two-digit numbers and they have to add them, add them up without the calculator. And we had 50 of those problem sets and you're supposed to, to solve as many as you can in five minutes and you're paid for each task that's solved. So it's incentivized, as I said, like in behavioral economics, we incentivize decisions and performance. Then in the verbal task, they had a set of letters, 10 letters and they had to build words out of them that don't repeat. And those are German words. So we have German students in here, right? So they had to build those words. Again, five minutes, they get paid for each word they build. And the cognitive reflection test is kind of a logic test. It's very popular in social psychology and also in behavioral economics. Those are three questions that are tricky. And again, they were incentivized to solve them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you guys measured um... I guess just whether they got it right or wrong, right? Is that, is that the idea? Both. So we measure the attempts to solve something and also the, the right answers at the end. The, num- the number of t- attempts it took to get it right? Uh, yes. Got the it. Effort. The effort. Got not, it. Not, not the number of attempts to get it right, just the, it's the number of questions they answered and ah. then the number of those questions that were correctly answered. Got it. And then is this, is this under like time pressure as well? Is that part of the idea? It is under the time pressure, yes. So yeah. they cannot solve 50 math tasks in, in five minutes. Nobody did. It's impossible. I mean, maybe it's possible, but they did But didn't. They're, they're trying to solve as many as possible in a relatively tight period of time. So like the, the subject is expected to sort of weigh the trade-offs of how long should I take on each question to make sure I get it right versus how many questions can I get right since I'm incentivized to, to earn, right? I mean, they're all similar questions. So all the math questions are very similar to each other. So they just actually normally go one after the other yep. and as many as they, as, they, as they manage. And the verbal task, thinking about words, it's again, there's some time limitations for that. Cognitive reflection task, 
this uh, test is only two questions. So I don't think there's any time pressure in there. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm going there too is like, you know, uh, Kaplan, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how people perform on high stakes tests, which is very similar to the, the trials you were talking about. And uh, interestingly, uh, the amount of time learners have or students have, subjects have, to respond correctly is, is, is an interesting trade-off where, you know, if, if you have unlimited time with really difficult questions, right. depending on your approach to problem solving, some people do better um, getting things right when they're, when they're not timed versus when I'm trying to maximize performance, uh, you know, on a relatively tight uh, time window. That, that's very much the way uh, the majority of folks experience standardized tests nowadays is like, I need to not only weigh whether I can get it right or wrong, I need to think about how long it takes. Um, and I think that's an interesting dimension to think about. First off, just the fact that you guys are thinking about these environmental variables, uh, I think is hugely relevant. And there's plenty to talk about on that front. But I was just curious about the research itself. Um, because there's a separate level of like metacognition necessary to weigh the likelihood of me getting it right or wrong versus the amount of time that I have. And I didn't know if, you know, I think that's a very, yeah. very interesting point. If I can jump in here, I, I didn't yeah, think yeah. about this before. Right. So when you take a test, like an SAT test, or when I give multiple choice tests for like your final exam, you have like, two hours to do 30 questions. And so you can sort of weigh where, which questions to do, how to skip, the effort to put in. These tasks are a little different. They're sort of presented as an open-ended task of like, you can just do as many as you have time for, and then just time's gonna run out. So people know ahead of time, in a sense, um, that they're, they're not going to finish this. There aren't like, you know, not like here are a set of questions and you're supposed to finish it within the time given. This is just, you know, this is work. Just do as mm -hmm. much work as you can. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, I guess, is choking under pressure. It's also a term in behavioral economics. So even if people were choking under pressure, it would be the same between the, between the treatments or between the different temperatures, right? Yeah. And, and, and then your findings, uh, we should probably talk a little bit about your findings themselves, too, which I think is what got a lot of the attention uh, more broadly is that um, even though we know the differences are not exclusively based on gender, the gender differences were were striking and did sort of reinforce the the broader perception that uh, women perform better and prefer higher uh, warmer temperatures, and men perform better and generally you know as a as a broader generalization uh, backed up by I believe backed up by your research that men perform better when it's um, uh, slightly cooler. Um, can you can you provide a little more clarity uh, around what your findings uh, were specifically? Yeah, I, I guess specifically as they relate to gender. Which one do you want to talk? Um, why don't you, you're talking? So why don't why don't you uh, continue? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we find that in the math task, the warmer it got, the better woman got, and the worse man got. So women's performance increased by one point seventy six percent with with each Celsius increase in the math task. For men, it was 0.6% decrease. However, this decrease is not significant, statistically. Mm -hmm. In the verbal task, we again see a positive trend for women. It's 1.03% increase in the performance. And for men, it's 0.6% decrease again. 
in the cognitive reflection test, we don't see any effects of temperature on the performance. Mm -hmm. And did you find that these trends hit an optimal set point by gender so that generally speaking, there's like an ideal temperature for women and an ideal temperature for men. And that if you get colder than that or warmer than that, that so, even, the, even the gender that performs better, like men, if it gets down to say like 60 degrees or, you know, in the fifties, like that starts to impair performance. And similarly for women, if the, the temperature starts to um, get too hot, everybody has trouble. Well, in our case, it didn't get too hot somehow. So the women were performing the better, the warmer it got. The men were the best at the coldest temperatures. So really like at the, at the extreme ends. Really? They are, yes. But again, so this is, this is a bit uh, maybe strange that women are so good at 90 Fahrenheit. But you have to think about the fact that the experiment is like one hour, right? Right. So it's not enough of time to get too hot. You know, like if I was sitting now here, actually today in Berlin, we have 90 Fahrenheit. So ah. after, after the day, I'm like not performing so well. I mean, I'm, I'm tired, but exactly. So it was a short experiment in the sense, like you don't spend one hour in the office. You spend more time than that in the office. Got it. So the extreme, like the, it, the extreme temperatures over time would probably have a negative effect because people would become uncomfortable if, if it was... It was I would longer. imagine that. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think the one thing I, I would sort of, you know, that, that jumped out to me about the results was the fact that, um, so the, the game for the men, or the, the, the game for the men as it got cooler, you, you really had to kind of squint to see it, and it was pretty stable. So if you went from um, the 60s to the 70s, it men's performance dropped by maybe like 3%, and if you went from the 70s to the 80s, it dropped another 3%. It was pretty linear throughout. With women, um, if you went from the 60s to the 70s, that's where you saw, that's where all the action was. So from the 60s to the 70s, it was close to a, you know, it was a double digit increase. You got 10 to 15% increases in female performance to go from the 60s to the 70s. And then when you went from the 70s to the 80s, there really wasn't much there. They, they, they didn't do worse, but they, did, they really didn't do that much better. So, you know, this, this is what really surprised me was that there was such big movement um, with what I think would be pretty typical indoor temperatures to go from like 65 to 75, um, you know, that's a double digit increase. And that, that I think is within the realm of, you know, normal indoor offices. Yeah. And, and interestingly, if you think about it in terms of the collective good, there, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, you know, when we were prepping, we were talking about the danger of uh, overgeneralizing and not understanding individual uh, variation within all of this. And I've talked about the end of average and the danger of uh, overgeneralizing two averages when we're really talking about individuals. That being said, it does sound like if we were to optimize for performance generally, we would probably run a little warmer than we do in typical office environments. And I imagine, you know, I, I, I would be curious, uh, about how you might think about the, the, the appropriate temperature for testing centers, because um, your research was very much about standardized tests. You know, it does look like women perform better as the temperature starts to increase and the negative effect to men around that slightly higher temperature is much less than the negative effect to women when it gets into, you know, the high 60s Fahrenheit. Um, are there any, um, 
do, do you guys have any perspective on that? Like, are, are there better set points for thermostats that we should be uh, advocating for? Because I, I, that, that's the other reason why this research is so hugely relevant is that, you know, many of us are, uh, you know, living with folks of different genders and uh, working with them as well. And the way thermostats typically work is you have to set it at a single uh, set point. And, um, you know, I was reading between the lines that maybe we should dial that up a little bit uh, and men just need to be able to deal with that, which does seem a little more woke and equitable uh, <laughs> as well. But, uh, but is, any thoughts on that from maybe starting uh, with you, Tom? Uh, but, uh, so but I'd love to hear from both of you. Yeah, so this is totally a statement against self-interest because I, I, I prefer it colder than, than warmer. My ideal temperature is probably the high 60s. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, you know, again, really one finding does not a fact make and we need more studies. And, yep. uh, but yeah, no, uh, if you have a, a gender mixed environment, it should probably be warmer than we normally been setting the temperature at. You know, I, I can tell you, you know, the best temperature, if you have a gender balanced office made up of Durban college students who spend all day doing simple math problems, you probably want it like 76 degrees. Wow. Yeah. So I, I'm melting there. Yeah. But, but Agna might, uh, might yeah, disagree with <laughs> I'm good there. Like in the United yeah. States, <laughs> I spent like, like not, not even two years in the United States and it was great. Like it's, it's, it's way too cold. It's way too cold. And so many female friends of mine are very grateful to our research. They're like, finally, I don't have to have my heater on the table at some point, maybe. Yeah. Well, it does almost, it's interesting too, where like the whole, uh, the one size fits none concept is one that I'm a, I'm a huge, huge believer in. And it does almost argue for, you know, I think back to like, not like I was there, but I, but I, I think back to like ancient Rome where there was like the, the tepidarium and the, the calderium and the frigidarium. So like you would have, you would have the baths and, uh, and in some ways maybe we are getting closer to ancient Rome. That's again, a topic for a, for a separate podcast. But, uh, but the idea that, um, you know, you almost want to be able to provide like a cooling zone in a, in a, an office space while also providing these warmer environments. Um, I think that is an interesting idea as well. So that, you know, even if let's say there is a fatigue component to, I've been in a warm environment, but now I'm beginning to get uncomfortable and I need to take a break. Um, could you find a place to kind of refresh, cool off, and then head back to to uh, to an environment where your performance will be more optimized? Um, some of those ideas are kind of interesting, and uh, as much new as much. Um, press as uh, the failure, uh, the, the so-called failure of the open uh, floor plan in offices. Um, it does seem like there's a very, uh, you know, we talk about the zeitgeist. There's a very um, timely, uh, universally applicable um, relevance to the type of stuff that you're talking about. If you were to design a, like an optimal workplace, workplace for performance, do you have any ideas uh, as far as like how we might be able to allow for um, differences, but also design in a way that is sort of reflective of the performance research you've done. Uh, I'm open to, you know, either you guys, I don't know what the temperature is like in your respective environments, uh, but whoever feels ready to answer that, uh, I'd love to hear from uh, either or both of you. So I can say the first, so that's what we Tom, uh, Tom and I talked about, and but we stress in our interviews is 
that in the office space, you have to look at your employees, you know, the way they feel like. If it's really too cold and people are shivering and having these heaters under their desks, that's a sign that something needs to be changed. And the good news is that there is this research now, and hopefully there will be more, that is like the hard evidence, you know? So you can go to your manager and say, look, I'm negatively affected. It's not only me, I'm not crazy, you know? There's really something going on. So this is one thing. I'm not sure about cooling off areas and heating up areas. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I mean, just listening to your employees might help. Sure. I, I think, you know, I, I think the ideas you mentioned are, are, are so, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk about going away from open office designs. There's been a lot of talk about incorporating microclimates, um, you know, going back into offices with different temperatures. I think all this is great. I think what I would, what I would stress is that this is a good conversation to have. This is a good research agenda to have to try to figure out how to set the local environment in such a way to make your, your workers more productive, right? I think the thing that was not productive was to say, yeah, you're a little too cold. Yeah, you're too hot. Just suck it up, yeah. right? The idea that it just, it just you know, we, we, there's only one temperature. We can't really deal with it and just leave it at that. I think that was the wrong sort of approach to this, right? What I think if people take away nothing from the, else from the research is the idea that these things do matter, right? Think about how much money and effort businesses and individuals put into maximizing their performance, right? The performance of their workers or maximizing your own personal performance, right? And what we're saying, what this research sort of shows or suggests is that, you know, these sort of environmental factors that you might have told yourself, just suck it up. Right? or told your workers just to suck it up. No, don't just suck it up. This, this is going to affect your productivity. If your business is going to affect your bottom line, if you're a person, this is going to affect you know, uh, how, how much you do and how well you do it. I, I think you know, while we don't specifically test for mechanism here, and so this is, this is sort of you know, irresponsible speculation on my part, I think, it, I, I, think I can say that I, I know what's going on here. It's pretty simple. When you're not comfortable, you just don't perform at your best, mm. right? That's why it lines up so well with preferences. When women are cold and they're just thinking, gosh, darn, it's too cold in here, they're not going to be at peak performance, right? And if you're a, a person, male, doesn't matter, just someone who's just uncomfortable. It's too hot or too cold for you. It's too humid. It's too loud. It's too, there's too much noise around. There's not enough noise around. It's just, it just means you, you're just not going to reach peak performance. You're just not going to be at your best. And, and mm. And that these effects are sizable. And so if you, you care about things like performance, then you should care about these factors. Yeah. And, uh, and context is hugely relevant, right? And, and, and it's very relevant in an individualized way, uh, which, yep. which I think it, that, that's a, that is a big insight. Um, I think Dan might have a, a c concluding question or two. This research is hugely interesting um, and great work by you to be both doing the the hard work of science, but also doing work that is uh, broadly relevant to people's lives. Cause frequently uh, that's something we try to focus on on this show too. Like how is the harder science relevant to you in your life as a learner, as an educator, as someone who cares about where the world is heading? Um, the last question I would have uh, before maybe handing it off to Dan for the wrap uh, is um, what other areas have you seen this type of uh, difference in so like it sounded like uh at least uh you know tom when we were warming up the um there was there were other factors beyond temperature 
that did seem to have a, a really significant impact on individual performance. Um, those things, I think, are really um, probably the broader takeaway, even though the, the conversation about the gender bias around the thermostat, I think, is, 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 is going to get the lift. There were other areas where you did see um, meaningful impact to performance. And I, I, if you could just share that back with our listeners, because I, I, I found that, that to be quite interesting as well. Sure. Some of this research is mine. Some of it is, is other people who are smarter than me. But, you know, things like uh, air pollution. Air pollution has, has a significant effect on test scores and the performance of indoor office workers. Uh, one that I found shocking just because of the magnitude of the effect was um, pollen. So if you have hay fever, it's really, really bad if, if you know, the, the pollen count is high before you take tests. It's just not good for you, right? Um, there's been work that looks at uh, hunger. If you're hungry, how that affects you. If you're tired, how that affects you. And I think most of us would, would, would sort of admit that, yeah, when I'm tired, I'm, I'm you know, not at 100%. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, these effects, I, I think, are much bigger than, than people think. Like, uh, here's one that, that I did recently. When you're feeling a little sick, you value health insurance a lot more. Mm. You want to go out and, and you, you buy more health insurance when you're sick. When the stock market is volatile, if you're someone who trades stocks, you actually get much more nervous and become much more risk averse. Mm. Um, and so you, you buy more life insurance on days when the stock market is volatile. Like these, these sort of effects, uh, we call them you know, visceral factors, right? So they, they, they affect a lot more than I think. I actually think you know, the, the stuff like that, like the stuff I did with pollution, these, these I feel kind of are, are obvious. The things I actually find that are more interesting are the kind of things that uh, that uh, Agna do, Agna does. Like, see, I, I think, like, think about the, the the research you talked about with lying, right? So this is about whether or not you're in a a, a place in in sort of time where you feel like you have um, the ability to be generous, right? You have lots of money, or you're sort of like at the knife's edge of not having enough to eat. How does that affect how you behave and 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 how your, your preferences work and, and how you work or how you can't work. And there are a lot of, there are people who are working sort of on these type of questions, right? So they often they work in sort of developing countries where, where people are sort of closer to the edge where sort of some of these visceral factors have a lot more bite mm -hmm. and they see how this affects us. And, and I found that research, you know, like the stuff that Agna does online, just, just endlessly fascinating. Absolutely. And the, the connection to K-12 students and how they learn and the learning environments they're all in here in the United States, uh, I think has implications with all the stuff you're talking about there, Tom, as well. Uh, I will self-report that I'm a male who prefers warmer temperatures, just so that's on record. Uh, and my allergies have been acting up the past six weeks. So if my podcasting performance has not been uh, to the highest level, that is what I'm going to blame. But Agna and Tom, I wanted to ask, What's next? Like, is there a next phase of this study for you all? Or, or is there advice you might give to other researchers out there how to take this to a next step or another finding phase on how this might work? Agna, uh, perhaps starting with you on, on what, what's next with this sort of research? Well, Tom and I, we don't know what we will do next. <laughs> but what people could do is clearly looking at more tasks, right? Looking at longer, longer experiments, going into the field, running field studies looking at different ages 
I got some emails from menopause women <laughs> saying they're unhappy. <laughs> like, sorry, like, but yeah. So like running more studies on more different subject pools because it's, it, this is one experiment, right? And this has to be noted. Tom? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think uh, we're going to do too much more in temperature. People ask me, you know, they want some sort of formula where they plug in who their people are and it gives them the, the right temperature. Think of all the factors that we need to put in there, right? So age, uh, gender, uh, I, will, I will admit that I have uh, a pretty classic uh, dad bod and subcutaneous fat is an excellent insulator. So that might be part of why I like it a little bit co colder than my, uh, I'll call them my undernourished colleagues. Um, so there's just too many dimensions here. This, this seems to me sort of more sort of a, to, to sort of figure this out more, it seems sort of a, an industry thing to sort of figure out, you know, they can go in and they can do consulting work to figure out what the optimal temperature is for the office. But, but for us, I think, you know, Agna and I, we're going to go back to try to, to study how these environmental factors affect both performance and decision-making. Cause I think that's just, it's, I think it's just a, a vastly underappreciated sort of aspect of of, uh, of human behavior. You know, if I can if I can quote uh, one of my my biggest research crushes, uh, George Lowenstein, he he wrote once that uh, these visceral factors are more basic to daily functioning than the highly the higher level cognitive processes that are often assumed to underlie decision making. So you know, when we think about how we sort of operate day to day, we like to think we're like these smart functional people that sort of do things for good reasons and and sort of have thought through everything and i'm not that person i'm the person who's you know like you know hungry or you're tired and so just sort of act more on these visceral uh you know and environmental factors than than i do on you know just sort of thinking everything through so i think there's a, a lot there to sort of delve into I may have to also self-identify as one of those undernourished colleagues of yours, uh, performing the warmer temperatures. It all that makes sense like now. Yeah. It all makes sense. It's all connecting. It all makes sense. Uh, Tom Chang, USC Associate Professor of Finance and Business Economics. Where can people find out more of your work in the future or what you already have out there in the world? Uh, our website. So uh, Agna and our websites have, have our papers. Um, another two things that I think are great if you sort of want to find out more about this in general is... Uh, well, I'll, I'll mention my research credits again, George Lowenstein. He um, probably will get the Nobel Prize pretty soon, but, but he's done like the work of like 40 or 50 ordinary researchers, but he's done a ton of stuff on this. I, I, I find amazing. I just read his throwaway papers and I'm, I'm just jealous. The other is actually the, the guy who um, connected us is Origanese down at UC San Diego. Um, does a lot of work on this too. Uh, and he does a lot of work if you're, especially if you're interested in the gender angle, he does a lot of stuff on the, 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 the how, you know, gender and preferences interact. And, and I think he and Agna, he and John List have a book recently, they don't do. they? The Y-axis, yeah. it's called the Y-axis, yes. Hmm. And he's writing another book on incentives, yes. I like the title, but you had me at the Y-axis, you know, yeah. it's, it's among my top two axes. Oh, no, it's W-H-Y accent. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Now, now you're talking. Yeah. yeah. Agna, how about yourself? You talked about the research around lying. I know I was able to find that on a Vimeo channel and watch some of that before taping today. Where can folks find out more about your research? Yeah, I have my webpage. Just Google Agna Kretkrete. I'm the only one in the world and you will find me. <laughs> 
That's good to know. Uh, so much uh, information here, more for us to come back to in the future. Hopefully we can stay in touch, uh, bring you back when more research comes around or a different topic to talk about. For those of you listening, of course, Trending in Education, find us at trendinginteducation.com, at Trending in Ed on Twitter and Facebook. And we'll have more of these types of topics in the future as we listen to more Trending in Education. <laughs>